I'd like for us to begin this morning uh, looking at some lessons from the book of Judges. It's just so much fun to study the Bible, and uh, as you continue to read and study different books and passages, it's just a never-ending treasure. And I've recently been able to study the book of Judges. I'd never studied it very intensively, and uh, I've just learned a lot of things that have been really exciting. And so I'm looking forward to being able to spend some time sharing some of those ideas with you. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, I'd like to begin here and look for a moment at what the instructions were that the people received when they entered the land of Canaan. Moses told them right before they went in, in Deuteronomy 7, When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and shall clear away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you, And when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you, and you shall defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, and show no favor to them. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 20, starting in verse 10, when you approach a city to fight against it, you shall offer it terms of peace, and it shall come about... If it agrees to make peace with you and opens to you, then it shall be that all the people who are found in it shall become your forced labor and shall serve you. However, if it does not make peace with you, then makes, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. When the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall strike all the men in it with the edge of the sword, only the women and the children, the animals, and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as booty for yourself, and you shall use the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not in the cities of these nations nearby. Only in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. But you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you, in order that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. Now, Nations far away, cities far away, they were allowed to make treaties with them in the sense of that they would not uh, destroy them. But the ones that were nearby, no, the ones that were nearby, they were to be utterly destroyed. Then Joshua chapter 23. While you're turning to Joshua 23, I thought of one other thing that I think wasn't announced. Kelly is preaching in Salem today, that's where he is. Joshua 23 verse 3. This is right at the end of the conquest. Joshua said, And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you. See, I have apportioned to you these nations which remain as an inheritance for your tribes. With all the nations which I have cut off from the Jordan even to the great sea toward the setting of the sun. And the Lord your God, he shall thrust out from before you and drive them out. Or drive them from before you, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. And he told them to be firm and do it, and not to associate with those nations. Now, let me see if I can present the overall picture. When Joshua and the people went into the land, they conquered the strength of the people of the land. They conquered all the coalitions of nations. But that didn't mean that they drove all the peoples of the land out. That job was left for the various tribes who received different territories, different parts of the land as an inheritance. Their responsibility 
was to drive out and exterminate all of the rest of the peoples in the land. That wouldn't be that difficult for them because the nation as a whole had already broken the back of the resistance. They'd already dealt with the strongest forces of the Canaanites. So the rest of the Canaanites would be conquerable by each separate tribe in their own territories. Now that's what they were supposed to do. That was the responsibility that they had. Now look at Judges chapter 1. Let's see how they did with that. Judges chapter 1. Now it came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Now, what you see in Judah right here and the people is a very good thing. They're asking God for instructions. They're asking the Lord to tell them which tribe should go up first. And he tells them Judah, and so Judah does. Now look at verse 5. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. So they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. They gained a great victory over Adonai Bezek. He had conquered 70 kings, cutting off their thumbs and big toes. You know, that kind of makes it hard for you to uh, manage to uh, do much with a weapon or to have very good footing when you're trying to fight a battle. That pretty well incapacitates you for fighting. Adonai Bezek had conquered 70 kings. He's evidently no piker of a fighter. He can do the job. But Judah, relying on the Lord, they conquer Adonai Bezek and cut his thumbs and big toes off and he dies in Jerusalem. In verse 10, so Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron, now the name of Hebron formerly was Kiriath Arba, and they struck Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai. Now look, keep your finger here, but look back in Numbers chapter 13. Maybe those names don't mean very much to you right now, but Numbers 13, 23, 22. When they sent the 12 spies in 40 years before, now, when they had gone up, this is 13.22 of Numbers, when they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron, while Hyman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were. And you come over to verse 33, and the ten spies say, there also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Those three guys were part of the giants, that terrified 10 of the 12 spies made them give their bad report and the people were afraid to go in and conquer the land. Now, Judah conquers those three giants. Judah is trusting the Lord, obeying the Lord, and conquering their part of the territory. Look at verse 11. Then from there, uh, he went out against the inhabitants of Deber, now the name of Deber formerly was Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, the one who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will even give him my daughter Oxa for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, 
captured it, so he gave him his daughter Oxa for a wife, and so forth. And we looked at that a little bit last week uh, with Max, that Caleb conquered uh, some of the toughest territory, and here he offers his wife to the one who would conquer uh, Deber, and either his nephew or his younger brother, it's not clear in the text which, does conquer Deber, and so they're able to, city after city, place after place, conquer it for the Lord. You see the children of Israel obedient to God. Look at verse 17. Not only Judah, but now in verse 17, then Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they struck the Canaanites living in Zephath and utterly destroyed it. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Guess what Hormah means? Destruction. (laughs) They gave the city the name of what they did to it. They destroyed it. You know why they destroyed it? That's exactly what God said they were supposed to do with all those cities. And so city after city, place after place, obedient to God, they were destroying the Canaanites, even the giants, and conquering the land for the Lord. If only that was all that there was in Judges, we would have such pleasant reading. However, there were some irregularities. Look at verse 18. And Judah took... Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. You remember those cities? Those are three of the five main Philistine city-states. And that ought to kind of tell you something. They took those three cities, but you know they didn't take them for very long. Because the Philistines were a thorn in the side of the Israelites after that. So that probably has you scratching your head a little bit. I, they conquered them, but I guess it didn't take. Then you read verse 19. Now the Lord was with Judah, and they took possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley built because they had iron chariots. They conquer the hill country, okay, but down in the valley where they've got the iron chariots, they can't conquer that. Iron chariots were the state-of-the-art military technology of that time period. You don't want to fight against iron chariots. But you know, if you stop and think about it, is the, Lord, is the strength of the Lord canceled out by iron chariots? You know, God said he'd be with them and he'd drive out the people of the land. I don't think an iron chariot is a match for God. So I take it that the people didn't really trust in the Lord's ability and strength to conquer the iron chariots in the valley. They whipped out. And then you look at verse 21. But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now that might cause you to do a double take if you go back to verse 8. Then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. You see what's happening is, like in this case with Jerusalem, Judah conquered it. But then then the Jebusites just moved back in and the Benjamites didn't drive them out. You know, it's one thing to conquer But if you don't conquer and get rid of the people, they just come right back in. And that's what happened there. So we saw first obedience. But then we see some things that start to worry us. 
They conquered some Philistine cities that we know didn't stay conquered long. They conquered the hill country, but in the valley, they got the iron chariots. They didn't know what to do with them. They conquered Jerusalem, but then the Jebusites moved back in. The Benjamites don't do anything about that. And then look at verse 22. Likewise, the house of Judah, Judah, let me start that again. Likewise, the house of Joseph went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph spied out Bethel. Now, the name of the city was formerly Loose, is what I'll say. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will treat you kindly. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go free. And the man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city and named it Luz, which is its name to this day. Now, that's kind of bad. You know, they conquer one city of Luz, but this guy that they let go goes and builds another one. Didn't do him a whole lot of good, did it? So again, we're seeing irregularities. You've got Judah conquering the Philistines only temporarily, not taking the valleys because of the iron chariots. Benjamin not driving out the Jebusites out of Jerusalem that Judah had conquered. Ephraim destroying one town and then letting the guy go and build another one. Well, it gets worse. Look at verse 27. But Manasseh did not take possession of Bethshean and its villages, or Tanak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ebleam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, so that the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. And it came about when Israel became strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nalol. So the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labor. Now, you see what, you, what we've got here? We, we first look at what I call some irregularities in the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and in Ephraim and so forth. But now we've got actually uh, the Canaanites living among Manasseh and Zebulun and some of those tribes. They don't drive them out. They just let them live there. Now, they do make them slaves in some cases. You know, they'll make the Canaanites serve them, but they don't get rid of them. It's like they sort of come to an agreement with the Canaanites. It's not so bad to have a few Canaanites living with you. You know, they take, they conquered the land. They just let them live there. Especially if they can make them slaves. I mean, that just kind of helps you out. Well, then look at verse 31. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Alab, or of Akzib, or Helba, or Aphek, or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath, but lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, and the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced labor for them. Now that's interesting. Here you've got the Israelites living among the Canaanites. No that. So now it's not that the Canaanites live among them, it's that the Canaanites are the default population, 
and the Israelites live among them. If we don't conquer our enemies, they soon conquer us. And so we go from the Canaanites living among the Israelites to the Israelites, they just live among the Canaanites. But it gets worse, verse 34. Then the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. Yet the Amorites persisted in living in Mount Heres and Ajalon and Shalbim. But when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, they became forced labor. Now the Amorites, they tell Dan where, they, where Dan can live. They, they give orders. They don't let him live there. The subject of the sentence in verse 34 is no longer the Israelites, it's the Amorites. Instead of them asking guidance from the Lord, they ask permission from the Amorites for where they can live. So we go from the irregularities of the Canaanites living among the Israelites to the Israelites living among Canaanites to the Amorites telling Dan where they could get off. Is there any application of this to us? Look over in Jude, verse 24. Jude, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, he also will bring it to pass. Now what I read those two passages for is this. God has the power to defeat sin in our life. He has the power to make us stand blameless, to sanctify us entirely. We should never be intimidated by the power of sin and the devil. We should never worry about the iron chariots that the devil has. God is stronger than he is, and he can destroy the devil and his power in our lives. But here's the rub. We've got to totally destroy the sin in our life. Just like God told the Israelites, exterminate those Canaanites. Drive them out completely. Don't leave any single one of them alive. Now here's what happens when we do not, through the power of God, destroy the sin completely out of our life. It creeps back in one step at a time. First, there are some irregularities. We don't get it all out of the valleys. We just take over the hill country. We whip it, but we don't expel it completely. We make a deal, and though we beat it, we, we let another sin creep back in somewhere else. You know, we kind of... We kind of trade. You know, I'll conquer this one and trade it for that one, building a city over here in my life. So when we don't drive all the sin out, then first we get some irregularities, and then we let sin live with us. 
Now, we make it our slave. You know, we're not going to let sin take over. We just let it sort of live kind of on the fringes and, and, and where we can tell it what to do and kind of order it around and make it our servant. And then pretty soon, sin lets us live with it. Sin kind of takes the upper hand and, and we sort of live in amongst the sin in our life and then pretty soon, sin begins to order us around. It, depend, it begins to tell us where we can go and what we can do. Isn't that what's happened sometimes in our lives? We didn't rely on the strength of God to destroy the sin from our life. And so we got rid of it most places, but not everywhere. Didn't really drive it all out. And then pretty soon we let a little bit of it live with us as a servant. And then pretty soon we were allowed to live with the sin. And then the sin just takes over. And one of the things that happens to us sometimes in those scenarios is that when we let sin keep going in our life, we lose our strength to beat it because we feel guilty. We, we know we're not doing what's right, so we don't feel like we can turn to the Lord for help. We may not even feel like we can turn to the Lord, period, because we know we're not doing what's right. And so then we think, well, I'm just going to try to battle this on my own. And well, we're just fighting a losing cause. We just get weaker and weaker. And the sin just gets stronger and stronger in, in, in our lives. I bet all of us have found that true somewhere along the line. And I bet there are some of us that could say that's what's been going on in my life recently. Do we maybe need to turn back to the Lord again? And ask him to help us get rid of the sin, period. Drive out those iron chariots. And not, not let just a little bit of it kind of, kind of stay over there in the corner. Because when we do that, we know we're not doing right. And that already defeats us. And then all sin wants is just a little bitty corner. Because he'll work his way in from there. That's exactly what happened to the Israelites in Judges chapter 1. And boy, wouldn't the rest of the Old Testament have been different if Judges chapter 1 had been different? Wouldn't the rest of your life be different if this morning you'd make the choice? I have not been, I've not been doing the way I need to do. But I'm going to turn to the Lord today and ask his strength to just drive that sin out. If you need to come to the Lord this morning, won't you do so while we stand this?